The Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah um, chapter 3, verse 6 through 18, and verse 22a, and you can find that in uh, page 406. On 406, sorry, not in. Um, let's see here. The, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up in every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all her adultery, excuse me, for all of the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away from it with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all her whole heart, but in pre pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself with more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go on and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithful, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, but I am merciful, declares the Lord. I am not angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the, the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declared the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and have been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or misled. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, that they shall no more stubbornly follow your own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. This is the word of the Lord. We're today looking at Jeremiah chapter 3, and we've been jumping around the book of Jeremiah all fall, and... So far, we have been examining what Jeremiah's prophecy has to tell us about the nature of sin. How sin gets expressed in the lives of the people of Judah, but also how sin is expressed in our own lives. And as we've looked at these different categories of sin, uh, I think it's, it's been really interesting to see what it has to say, but now we're going to move on to a slightly different focus today as we talk about what I would consider the main message in the book of Jeremiah. And it's focused around this one particular word. And I think that word, the, the word that we're studying this morning, is, is a word that not only sums up the message of Jeremiah, but pretty much the message of all of Scripture. Um, this, this particular word we find in some form or another 18 different times in Jeremiah chapter 3, and it is this Hebrew word, uh, shuv, is the word. And it means turn, or return, or as it's often translated, repent. Um, 
That word, turn, is the heart of God's message to the people of Judah. And it remains, in many ways, the heart of his message to us today. Repentance. Repentance is at the center of the Christian faith. If you have read through the Gospels before, you might recall that in Mark, the oldest of the Gospels, the, the very first words that uh, are recorded, the very first words that Jesus says in the Gospels are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. That's the first thing that Jesus says when he comes on the scene. Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, if you remember, the, the Protestant Reformation was kicked off by writing the 95 Theses. And the, the first of those, the first line of that document that kicked off the Reformation was based on Jesus' call to repent. And Luther says there, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Repentance is central to our faith, but as central as it is, I think it's one of those things that we don't entirely understand. In our passage this morning, there's a line that says that Judah did not repent with her whole heart, but in pretense. And I think that idea of not repenting properly, but repenting in pretense is actually much more common than you might think it is. And so that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to talk about what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent the way that Luther describes it, the way that Jesus requires it, the way that God is calling Israel to do here, and what does it mean to repent these other ways, <laughs> in pretense, and what is, what is false repentance? So to answer that question, I want us to look at this passage and I want us to see three things. First, I want us to see the call to repentance. What, what makes up God's call to repentance? And then secondly, uh, the face of true repentance. What does real repentance look like? And then thirdly, I want us to see the result of true repentance. So the call to repentance, the face of true repentance, and then the result of repentance. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see those things pretty clearly, but first we kind of need to figure out what's going on here. This is a little bit of a complicated passage, especially as we're getting into the history of Judah and Israel and all the things that are happening here. You may remember, we talked about this over the last few weeks at different times, that, that Israel was initially one united nation, and then after the reign of Solomon, it was divided in half. And so there was the northern nation called Israel, and then the southern nation called Judah. And in about 720 B.C., that northern nation, Israel, was attacked and destroyed by Assyria. And we, we know from Scripture, we know from some of the other prophetic books, and even this one, that, that that was an act of God's judgment. And so it's in that context that, verse, uh, that our chapter starts today. It says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? So talking about the northern nation. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she's done this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, 
I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. So our passage starts with this address to the southern nation of Judah. It says, you people have witnessed everything that went on in this northern nation. You saw their sin and its consequences. And he uses this vivid imagery of marriage. He's talking about the, the, this marriage and adultery and, and divorce. He says that the northern nation, that Israel was adulterous, and as a result, he sent her away with this decree of divorce. And so he's speaking to Judah, and he says, you see what happens. You know what happens to these idol-worshiping nations, and yet you have done the exact same thing. You, too, have been involved in this same kind of spiritual prostitution. Before our passage starts, it, it even has more graphic language, where he tells Judah, uh, he says, lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. Well, that word ravished is, is actually a much more violent word. It's, it's where have you not been raped? Where have you not submitted your, yourselves to these, these idols who are destroying you? And one of the things I, we've talked about as well over the last few weeks is that when the Bible discusses sin, it's always talking about something more than merely doing bad things. It's always talking about something deeper than our outward behavior or how we act. Sin has to do with our hearts. And for Israel and for Judah, God's primary concern with them was not that they would get back in line and then start performing the right rituals. His primary hope for them was not that they would start following the rules in a, to the T. In fact, this is a time... Under the, it tells us it was the days of King Josiah. If you've ever read through the books of Kings or Chronicles, you might recall that Josiah was a great king. He was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. He was a reformer. He came in and he reinstituted a lot of these rituals and rules. And at this time in, in Judah's history, they were probably, I would say they were probably doing more to keep the rules than they had in, in centuries. So that's not his main concern. The point of this is that their sin was deeper than their outside behavior. Their sin was that their lives were not centered upon God, but they were centered upon these idols. Literally, they were chasing after Baal and these fertility gods. Literally, they were going to other gods and worshiping at other temples, but also uh, their hope, the thing they really wanted was, was wealth. The thing they really wanted was comfort. The thing they really wanted was uh, security. And so they made political allegiances with nations that had historically been their enemies. And, and just like many of us, what ended up happening with these people is that they professed with their mouth an allegiance to God. They would say that, that we follow God, but the true hope of their heart was elsewhere. The thing they really worshipped was something less. And so sin, like we've been talking about, it's more than just outward actions. And because sin is more than that, when God talks about repentance, 
When God is calling these people to repent, he is calling them to do something much more than remedy your bad behavior. His call to repentance is more than just get your, get your act together. And that's why this word return, shuv, the thing we're talking about this morning, is such a good word for us. Return. Turn. Come back. See, the call to repentance is a call to relationship. Repentance is essentially a relational category, not a behavioral one. And that's why this is such an amazing thing here. God, after all this, after all the terrible things that Israel and Judah has done, he calls them both to come back. He, he, he first says, return faithless Israel. And you know, I mentioned the word return comes up a lot here. Um, you could translate that, turn back, back turning Israel. This word, it comes in there over and over again. He says, return faithless Israel. Then he says, return faithless children. He says it to both nations. After all their sin, after all their waywardness, still God calls out to them and he says, come back. Turn. And here's what he calls them to do. Here's what he says, verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favorite among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. The only thing God calls them to do in this passage is to admit their guilt. He says, Admit your guilt. I think there's some fertile ground for us here when we start talking about guilt. David Richter is the pastor of our Somerville congregation, and uh, he says oftentimes when he's discussing his faith with others outside of the church, one of his go-to questions is to ask, what do you do with your guilt? Because he knows, as, as I'm sure you know, that it is an inescapable fact. If you are a human being, you experience guilt. We all feel guilt for something. We all realize that at the very core of ourselves, we just aren't the people we wish we were. We aren't the kind of people that we think we should be. Uh, forget about God's standard of perfection. Forget about holiness. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, gave this illustration of how we all feel guilt or, or the ways that we're all guilty. By, he said, imagine that you went through life and you had a little recorder uh, hanging around your neck. And the only time it would ever turn on to record was when you said, you should really, you ought to, when you gave some statement about how people should be living. And he said, what if that was the only standard? And in the end, you stand before the Lord, and he just hits play, and doesn't play back his standard of perfection, but just your standard, the way you think people ought to be, the way you think people should behave. And he says, if that were the case, still, none of us could stand. None of us would live up to even our own standards of perfection, because we are all guilty. We all fail miserably. We aren't the kind of people we know we should be. We're not the kind of neighbors. We're not the kind of friends or spouses. We're not the kind of parents that we want to be. We're distracted. We're selfish. We're full of 
pride and envy. We're full of lust. And occasionally, we even do things that are incredibly destructive. Occasionally, we do the kind of things that really hurt ourselves, that hurt people around us and the ones that we love. We all have guilt. So what do you do with that guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Well, psychology might tell us, let it go. Move on. Put it behind you. Bury it. Maybe avert your feelings. Give your, you know, talk positively. Try to, try to think about the bright side. Maybe tell yourself things aren't so bad. Maybe, maybe one of the things we'll do with our guilt is to, to blame others for the ways we behave. Or, or just to find someone who's worse and compare ourselves. Like, okay, well, I might feel bad now, but what about that guy? At least I'm not, at least I'm not like him. Now, I don't want to uh, dismiss the fact that there is some kind of guilt that's, that is illegitimate guilt, right? There's some kind of guilt that, that we, counseling can be helpful for us to, to filter that out and tell us we shouldn't be feeling guilt about those things. But the Bible says that there is a certain kind of guilt that we should feel. There's a certain kind of guilt that we, we should not only feel it, but we should, we should own up to it. Scripture tells us the only way the only resource that we have for dealing with that guilt we feel, that deep-down, honest guilt, is repentance. Thomas Watson is an old Puritan, and he wrote a, a tract, I don't know what you would call it, it's pretty long by our standards, but it's called The Doctrine of Repentance. And in that, he says, here's, here's the first thing that has to happen in repentance. The very first thing, if you're going to repent, is that you have to see your sin. Exactly what God says right here. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge it for, for what it is. Realize that it's not just a matter of your behavior. It's not just a matter of your actions, but the problem within you is a problem that's in your hearts. That you have placed the hope of your lives in something other than God, and that you have not just done that once, but, but we do it habitually. We do it all the time, over and over and over again. We've rebelled from God, like this says in verse 12. We've run from Him. But Thomas Watson says that, that when we see that, when we realize that we're guilty, when we're in that place where we can finally admit it, we're in a good place. Because once we see how far we've run away, once we see how far we've gotten from God, then we can finally respond to that call to come back, to return. God's call to repentance is a call to, to see our guilt and to return to Him, to come back, to come home. But as, I'm, as I mentioned earlier when we first started off here, we can still get, get it wrong at that point. We can still come up short of real repentance. So let's talk about this for a second. What is the face of true repentance? This is the second thing I want to address this morning. What, what is the difference? What is real repentance? So Watson, he says the first thing, the first requirement is that you need to see your sin. But that, just acknowledging that you're guilty, is not repentance. Every person who is 
sitting in the bar, pouring out their heart to the bartender, sees their guilt, right? But it's not repentance. So let's talk a moment here just about some of the ways we can short-circuit this. Some of the ways that we get almost to repentance but end up going in the wrong direction. That's what we see in verse 10, right? It says, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And we see that idea of a return in pretense all throughout the Old Testament. It's kind of the story of the Old Testament. That God is constantly calling his people to come back. But then the Israelites, uh, they respond to this call in, in bizarre ways. They respond, instead of responding to God as, as if he's God, as if he is the one who has delivered them out of slavery, who has given them everything purely by his grace and nothing that they've done to deserve it, the Israelites often deal with God as if he is uh, a God who, who only relates with this tit-for-tat system of the law. The people approach God and they say, okay, God, you want us to repent? Sure, we'll do the things that you asked us to do. We'll, we'll keep these rules, and then you've got to restore us, okay? In other words, Judah, the reason why they had started observing these laws under King Josiah. The reason why there was this time of, of reformation and renewal was because they thought, well, this is what we need to do so that God will fix our problems. They came to him in pretense. They came to him outwardly doing these signs of repentance, but inwardly they, they had an ulterior motive. They were hoping, if you think about it this way, they were, they were trying to put God in their debt. We did all the things you asked, now you owe it to us. We did all the things you required, so now you've got to do what we say. And that's not repentance at all, right? That's, 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 that's something else entirely. And maybe it even sounds absurd to us listening to it now. Like, why would anybody think that would work? But I think we do that as well. I think we also repent in false ways all the time. It's always our tendency as human beings to fall back on this law relationship with God. Instead of believing that he's a God who saves us by grace, we, we come into this idea that we need to do something to earn it. Martin Luther, that great reformer, who when you read his works, you think, man, this guy really gets the gospel. You know, he understands it more than maybe anybody else. He himself, when he was reflecting on this, he wrote, I myself have now been preaching and cultivating the gospel through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still, I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. He says, I want to deal with God in a way that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. The essence of the gospel is that we have been saved by grace through faith. But anytime we make the focus of repentance primarily about what we do, instead of what God has done, we fall into the same trap that these people of Judah have fallen into. And if you're not following me, if this isn't connecting, let me just give you a couple of examples 
of what that might look like in your life. You know, if you're a Christian and you make a practice of of repenting, I think one of the ways that we can do this is just through groveling. That we think, oh man, if I if God's going to forgive me of my sins, what I I need to do is be really sorry. And so that's going to be hard. That's going to take some work. So maybe I'll I'll put that off for a little while. <laughs> but when I'm ready to put the work in to get the forgiveness, then I'm going to come. And then you go and you confess and you 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 know mope around, you look really sad, you, you go through this, this whole show and you say, well, God, I, I, I'm really, really, really sorry, and you feel bad about yourself. And, and when you do that, what you're really saying is, this is what earns my forgiveness. This effort that I'm putting forward into my, my groveling and my moping. Or another thing we can do is we can come to God and we can say, God, you know, I'm sorry for my sin, and I promise I will never, ever do it again. And I'm going to clean up my act, and you just watch. <laughs> you know, you, you, if you forgive me this time, I promise I'll make it up to you. I'll, I'll make it worth your while. I'll earn it. When we do that, we, when we do those things, we end up basing our relationship with God, not in his mercy, but it's about what we deserve, right? It's about what we can earn. It's about what we can do. But look at what God offers to the people here. If you've got your Bibles, you can just read along with me. It's verse 14. He says, Return, O faithless children, for I am your master. I will take you from one city, one from a city, and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or be missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage." Look at the thing that God promises them after their repentance. Is that something that Judah deserved? It's a description of the nations of Israel and Judah being restored. But not just restored, united, and then made to be the center of all creation with God at the center. (laughs) Does that have have anything in the, the realm of fairness? Uh, Is there any way that that Judah could possibly have earned something like that? No. This is all about God's grace. God's promises to them have absolutely nothing to do with what they deserve. It has nothing to do with anything they could have earned through their own behavior or through their habit of repentance. And, And every commentator, you know, every person who writes about this book will tell you that this promise is a messianic promise. This promise is not just a promise of a restored country, but it's a, it's a promise of salvation. That thing about the people not having the ark anymore. What is that all about? Well, that's just saying that there's, there's no need for this thing that represents the presence of God among the people because God's presence will be amongst his people. It's the promise of salvation that comes through the Messiah. And that there is 
the fundamental difference. That's the difference between a true and a false repentance. The truly repentant person sees their guilt, but then they don't bargain about it. They don't try to negotiate with God. They don't try to minimize it and compare themselves with others. But they see their guilt, and then their focus goes straight to the grace and the mercy of God. They see his holiness. They see his goodness. And they realize, I've got no claim. I've got no right. There's nothing I can do to earn my way back into his good graces. Their guilt leads them to repent. And so that, Thomas Watson, getting back to him, his, his document, he actually writes out some of the other steps to a genuine repentance. And I think they're kind of helpful for us. He says that when we, when we interact with God that way, when we see his holiness is not something that we deserve, that his grace is not something we can get, what happens is that, that we see our sin and then we experience sorrow for our sin. Because once we see the goodness of God, once we see how amazing it is to be in his presence, we realize what our sin costs us. We realize that our sin has, has taken us out of his presence. And we realize we start to feel sorrow. And then the thing that follows that, he says, is we confess our sins. And I like his distinction. He says, when we confess our sins, we do it with specificity. <laughs> we, we list the things that we've done. We own up to what our sin really is. And he says, then we do it in a way that seeks to clear God of any wrongdoing. We confess our sins in a way that, that, that clears God of any wrongdoing. In the book of Nehemiah, there's a great example of this, where the people repent and they come to God and they say, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. In real repentance, there is this instinct that says, I, I'm the one that's at fault here. It's not anything that you've done to me, it's me. And what follows that, what comes out of that confession then, is the hatred of sin. That's what he says is the, the next step, hating your sin. I was just at this conference um, a couple weeks ago where Peter Kreft spoke. He's a, a, a theologian, and he was saying that every single person on earth lives in this state of moral insanity. And he called it moral insanity because he says, we know this fact. Every time that we have connected ourselves with God and been obedient to him and lived in his will, it has resulted in pleasure. It has resulted in, in, in delight. And every single time we have strayed from his will, every single time we have pursued these idols of our hearts and chased after sin, it has resulted in pain and harm and grief and anguish. And yet, still... Over and over and over again, we choose sin instead of God. And he said doing that same thing over and over again is, is morally insane, right? If you think choosing sin is going to result in something different, you're crazy. Watson says how, when, when we hate sin, however lovely our sin is portrayed, we, it disgusts us. That when God puts a hatred of sin in our hearts, then however lovely our sin is portrayed, it, it, it disgusts us to see it. We hate it. We hate it 
like, like beef stroganoff. I don't know, maybe you guys don't share my hatred for beef stroganoff. <laughs> but I'll tell you about my hatred for beef stroganoff. So when I was a kid, my grandparents, they, they made beef stroganoff for me one time. And after eating it, you know, I got horribly sick. And after that, for, for years and years, every time I would see it, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want that. that. That's gross. And then somebody again prepared it, and it looked good, and it smelled good. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll give this a crack again. It's been a long time. And so I ate it, and of course, got horribly sick again. Now, it doesn't matter how beautifully prepared someone brings me a dish of beef stroganoff, I won't touch it. I don't want anything to do with it because I know what it's going to cost me. <laughs> When we hate our sin, it's a similar dynamic. It doesn't matter how beautiful it appears, we know what it's going to cost us. And we don't want it. We see through it. And then the last thing that Watson says is once you hate your sin, the final thing is you turn from it. But do you see that distinction? Turning from the behavior is actually the very last thing. You know, the, the people of Judah, they would make changing their behavior the beginning. Of repentance. But, but here it says the major work of repentance is something that happens in our own hearts. It's about seeing the beauty of God. It's about seeing the true nature of our sin, and it's about returning to him and coming home. And so what's the result of that? What is the result of true repentance? Um, with our reading, I threw in one little piece of verse 22. Um, I, I put it in there because I think it, it fits right in line with, with all the rest of this text. It says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. I will heal your faithlessness. It's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Heal your faithlessness. Why doesn't God say, I'm going to restore your faithlessness, or I'm going to forgive your faithlessness? But he says, I'm going to heal it. How is that possible? How is it possible that, that doubt and sin could be healed in us? How is it possible that that stuff could be, could be removed? Throughout our passage, God is making these declarations. I'm merciful. I won't be angry forever. Pretty common stuff, maybe. I think when we read those, we often breeze right over them. We say, yeah, sure, our of course God's merciful, right? Culture's told us, yes, that's what God exists to do. God exists to be merciful to me and to forgive the bad things that I do. But that is not the God of the Bible. Mercy in Scripture is a costly thing. When God declares who he is to Moses, he says that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he keeps steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He says all of that, but he follows it by saying, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He says, I am a merciful God, but I will not clear the guilty. A holy God cannot simply let sin slide. A holy God cannot forego justice for the guilty. The guilty have to be punished. But the place where God's mercy and his justice meet, of course, is at the cross. God doesn't simply let go of sin. But on the cross, all of our sin is placed on Christ. 
On the cross, Christ gets all of our guilt. Christ became guilty. Christ paid for our guilt with his life. And the good news of the gospel is this. It's through the resurrection, we are, are given his righteousness. We, I mention that verse all the time, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is where God heals our faithlessness. God takes Christ's faithfulness and gives it to us. He says, here's how I'm going to heal your faithlessness. I'm going to take it for mine, and I'm going to give you my faithfulness in return. This, these promises right here in, in our passage where he says, I'm going to give you a shepherd after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's what this is about. This is Jesus. Jesus says, attach yourself to me, feed on me, and I will replace your faithlessness with my faithfulness. And when that happens in your life, when you experience that healing that comes through repentance, that's where the power to change really lies. You see, I've, I've been mentioning it over and over again at this point, but, but repentance is not just about reforming yourself. It's about relationship. It's about connecting ourselves by faith to Christ daily. Turning from our idols daily. Coming back to our senses daily. Saying with the Heidelberg Catechism, I'm not my own but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Je Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and freed me from the tyranny of the devil. It's about repeating the gospel to ourselves in the midst of even our worst failures. It's about, in those moments of, of deep sin, looking to the cross and experiencing his grace. It's about hearing him calling to us and saying, come home, return. And it's that process, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, over and over. That is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to transform your life. As we experience that cycle, as we learn more of how good the gospel really is, that it's still offered to us, even as bad as we still are. As we fall on our faces and we see the mess that our sin gets us into, when we see more and more how deceitful sin is, and then we see this Savior who never ceases to call us back, who never ceases to say, return. The result of repentance, what is it? The result of repentance is healing. The result of repentance is that God heals our faithlessness. But to be healed first, we've got to return. We've got to turn from our sin and turn back to Christ. Watson says that turning from sin is like pulling an arrow out of your body. <laughs> it's like pulling the arrow out of your wound. But turning to God, returning to God is like pouring in the balm to heal you. And so that's, that's my invitation to you guys this morning.
see the promises of Christ and return. Come to him, this good shepherd, and be fed by his righteousness instead of your measly record of performance. Come to this table and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word. Lord, I thank you that repentance is a gift. Lord, that repentance is something that you've given to us uh, as a reminder of, of, of your ability to save. <laughs> Lord, I thank you that repentance is, is offered to all who would come. And I pray, Father, that, that if there's any here today who don't know you, who have never come to you in repentance and faith, I pray, God, that they would come now. And I ask, Lord, if there are any here who have found themselves again face down in the muck, who feel this morning like saying, what have I done? How have I gotten this far away? Lord, I thank you if you've given them that grace today so that they can stand up and return. We pray in Jesus' name.